Radio. Conversations with Daniel Noor. Tackling the tough questions on cradio.org.au. Conversations with Daniel Newell is an edgy, topical podcast featuring an expert on a hot topic in society with myself. I'm the Daniel Newell element. That's where I come in. Every couple of weeks, you can tune in and get up to speed. Don't fake it. Know what Catholicism says about the stuff that matters. You're listening to Conversations with Daniel Newell. Today, we are privileged to have with us Abdullah Kunda. Abdullah is a postgraduate research student who has studied Islam at the Cordoba Academy, the Avicenna Academy, and the Abu Hanifa Institute. He has a particular interest in Orthodox Islamic theology, and in particular, the Kalam Method. Uh, Abdullah, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Daniel. So, listeners, the topic is, I suppose, what is Islam, is what we're looking at. There are so many uh, experts, quote-unquote experts, who purport to speak on behalf of a whole religion out there in the media. And, of course, we know that Islam is a religion of various strands, if you like, or uh, schools, broadly speaking. And so we thought, uh, I certainly think, it would be a great idea for listeners, for Catholics or anyone really wanting to be better informed about uh, the diversity of the religion that we're dealing with so often in the news to get some kind of, you know, Islam for, for dummies guide. And I hope that you can enjoy that today with Abdullah's uh, generous help. What is your view of the role of Islam for the Arabian Peninsula during its early spread, the early years of uh, the Prophet Muhammad's, I suppose, campaigns in the region of Abdullah? Well, during the uh, lifetime of uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the uh, critical role uh, for the, the early Muslims was, first of all, to establish a theological base for the religion as per the divine command, and secondarily to that, to also establish the social fabric that Muslim society would be built upon, and in doing so, invite uh, the predominantly polytheistic uh, locals uh, that were engaged in a whole range of immoral behaviours at the time towards an alternative and better lifestyle uh, that is uh, observing Islam. Yes. You say that there was a, 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 an immorality, a level of immorality. Could you describe what was going on in the Arabian Peninsula? And perhaps could you specify the years that we're talking as well? Sure. So we're talking in the uh, 6th and 7th century um, of the Common Era. And uh, going by our historical sources and also by the historical sources that are generally accepted by Orientalists, uh, there was a considerable amount of sexual immorality at the time. Uh, there was also, a, uh, I guess, a really poor valuing of human life and existence. So uh, infanticide, particularly of uh, female children, was common. Uh, it, it, it was common to have... Uh, duels with neighbouring tribes over really minor uh, points of, of conflict and disagreement. Uh, and likewise, there was widespread gambling and, uh, and, and other, uh, I guess, social vices that served to uh, make Arabian society at the time, or at least society in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, really, uh, I guess, really poorly structured. And, and uh, in fact, you know, we know also from uh, history that that's 
come to us via the Romans, that uh, the Romans and the Byzantinians could not even be bothered uh, conquering or uh, uh, governing the Arabian Peninsula because it was such a, uh, I guess, a, a, a meaningless place at the time, and the and the people that were living there were were so unattached from from what uh, human values were then, and and I guess what they also are now. And that's because you would say that the governments in charge had no regard for a common system of decent morality. Well, I think that's that's certainly the foundation. I mean, I think that any successful society will have a, a, a bedrock of morality for them to build themselves upon. Um, and this immorality, for me, led to the, the poor structure of Arabian society. I mean, to talk about an Arabian government prior to the time of uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, would be, uh, would be effectively meaningless. Um, the Arabian Peninsula was... Uh, was just a, a slapdash group of warring Arab tribes that spoke the same language more or less, um, effectively adopted the same, uh, uh, I guess, pagan practices more or less, but, but by and large was a really uh, fragmented and, and divided society. What was the government, if any, that the, was... At power, you know, in the sixth century, the, the, the system of government at the time. Yeah, uh, it, it was it was just tribal rule. So I mean, the various tribes you know, uh, governed particular areas. I guess that had been recognised as their tribal um, geographical locations for for a period of time prior to that. Um, and sometimes they worked cooperatively with one another. Other times they didn't. Uh, there's talk of uh, Mecca as being understood as, I guess, for lack of a better term, the the capital of of the the collective capital of the Arab tribes at the time, um, and that there was annual pilgrimages to to Mecca and uh, and and as I said, some degree of cooperation. But overall, it was it was effectively small tribal communities living independently of one another. And were there any large national governments? What were they? Did they wield any influence? Well, the, I, I guess there there were satellite governments that would be in areas that we would now consider to be uh, Arabian, uh, but at the time certainly weren't um, Arabian. But, uh, I mean, the, the largest, I guess, satellite governments at the time would have been the, uh, the Persians and the Byzantinians, uh, and then perhaps also the Abyssinians as well would, would um, feature as a significant uh, government that existed uh, as a satellite government at the time. But in terms of the Arabian Peninsula itself, it's, it's generally accepted that it was a, uh, an area without a formal system of government. And then the Prophet Muhammad, you say that already there were minor or maybe trivial duelings going on, fights that didn't really qualify as important and then the Prophet Muhammad came in. Now, was it a system of conquest that he employed in order to bring some kind of unifying force to the region? Military campaigns certainly formed part of the, the process of establishing uh, the, the first Islamic state uh, under the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. There's certainly no doubt about that. Uh, I think where... Um, I guess I would 
disagree with the narrative that's that's often presented is is to whether those military campaigns served a a theological function. Now, I know that a lot of listeners will say, well, there is no theological and political distinction in Islam, and and I agree with that as a superficial statement. But in terms of, uh, I guess, converting uh, people within the the uh, Arabian Peninsula to Islam or facilitating their conversion to Islam and establishing a system of government that they could live under, whether they were Muslims or not, uh, I think that they were two separate functions. And so I think that military campaigns certainly formed a critical part of the, the latter, uh, but not so much part of the former. So you say that military campaigns had some kind of theological importance? I, I, I think their theological importance is, is negligible. Uh, I think the, because I think that the, ultimately, if um, individuals that, that were not part of uh, the Muslim nation at the time decided to uh, adopt Islam, it tended to have very little to do with their, uh, with the military power of the Muslims, which at time, I mean, for the bulk of the lifetime of the Prophet, peace be upon him, was extremely weak. Um, and, and also in the areas that the Muslims progressively liberated in the Arabian Peninsula and then later in the surrounds, um, there obviously remain significant populations of, of individuals holding to Judaism, Christianity, other uh, religions that uh, exist in the Middle East. Uh, and so I, I think, therefore, that the military campaigning served very little uh, uh, in, in terms of the, the conversion process or inviting non-Muslims to Islam. We're going to skip ahead now. There has been a, a kind of, let's say, an era of Muslim government and then the death of the Prophet. A lot of debate continues, I suppose, between Muslim communities about the legitimacy of the Prophet's successes. What are the major differences between Sunni and Shiite Islam? Ah, that's a that's a good question. Uh, I, I think that, I mean, what I would say is that, and this will probably resonate better with, with Catholics and perhaps it would with some other branches of Christianity, but what I would say is that uh, Sunni Islam, or what's commonly called Sunni Islam, is Orthodox Islam, and Shiite Islam is completely heterodox and is then frag fragmented into various sects, I guess much like Protestantism is um, and I would say that while an outsider could say view Holy Communion and then go to a Protestant church where they happen to give out, you know, grape juice and bread and, and, and think that it's the same thing, uh, actually theologically and even sacramentally it's not. And that's the same uh, as with an outsider observing uh, Sunni practices and even exposition of beliefs. and and general Shiite ones as well. While from the outside they may appear to be the same, they're actually not. So in terms of the critical theological differences, and you've touched on one of them, first of all is that Orthodox Islam does not have a clergy and does not have a system of, I guess, essential belief with regards to who the successor to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was. And, and with regards to... Those it are, you say it doesn't have an orthodox belief. No, no, it, no, it's not that it doesn't have an orthodox belief. It doesn't have a critical belief. Ah. So, um, <clears throat> so yeah, I guess the, 
for, for one to disagree over, in Orthodox Islam, in Sunni Islam, for one to disagree over who should have been the successor to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, it, it, it does not entail any form of disbelief or apostasy. Or, I mean, one is not de deviating from a creed. Um, I mean, they certainly would be, uh, say, considered, I guess, I don't know, silly or, or naive to, to think that the matter wasn't clearly discussed and, um, and illustrated in the time of the Prophet, and, and that is namely that uh, his first successor was his um, best friend and companion, uh, Abu Bakr. Uh, but um, but th this is open for discussion in orthodox theology. But but the critical thing also is that whoever we accept as the successors to the prophet, peace be upon him, um, we don't attach any special, uh, I guess, attributes to them. So we don't consider them to be uh, infallible. We don't consider that consider them to be theologically significant in any way, other than they were direct companions of the prophet, peace be upon him. Now, when we look at uh, Shiite Islam, the, the attitude towards succession is which considerably you, which different. Which you claim is a kind of diversion, diversion might not be the word, but a kind of de perhaps a deterioration of, of orthodox belief. Oh, yeah, I, I, th I think that absolutely it, it, it would be a, um, an extreme, um, it would be an extreme deviation from orthodoxy. Uh, and, uh, and I'll, I'll touch on an example in terms of one of the successes that they identified to the Prophet, peace be upon him. So first of all, for them, the, the successors, and, and they don't accept Abu Bakr as the first successor. They think that Ali, the uh, son-in-law and cousin of the Prophet, should have been the first successor. But the critical thing for them is that they attach special attributes to the successors, namely that they are infallible, and not just in the in the papal sense, as in when one is speaking from the chair, but they are absolutely infallible, completely protected from sin, um, in a in a in a divine way by God. Um, and then following on from that, that these successors have really essential and critical roles, I guess, for the further development of the religion. So one uh, doctrine that they have in place is that one of the sons of Ali, who they believe to be the the third successor. To the Prophet Muhammad, his grandson Hussein uh, effectively died, uh, so that the truth of Islam could be propagated throughout the world. and And there are considerable parallels to the language used in uh, the the death of, and resurrection of Jesus in terms of dying for the sins of the world as a kind of martyr. Absolutely, yeah, and, and and not and not only not only a, I guess a blind martyr or an uncertain martyr, a certain one, knowing that his death is essential for the propagation of truth. Um, they they attribute certain titles to his mother, the daughter of the prophet Fatima, uh, like uh, you know Our Lady, Lady of Light, and so on. All of which, of course, you know, will be familiar to to any Catholic uh, listening. Uh, and um, and I guess I would argue that. That these are clear um, influences from from alternative religions, um, and not. I, I mean, I'm not arguing that Catholicism uh, influenced Shiism uh, uh, in a you know in an active way. Uh, I'm simply saying that that some uh, who consider themselves to be Muslims saw. Uh, alternative beliefs in the Arabian Peninsula at the time that they thought were perhaps beneficial or or could add to Islam, and and these you know then found their way 
uh, in. Um, so in, I guess in short, as I said, I'd go back to the analogy that I gave at first, and, and I'm assuming that you'll agree with me that there's a big difference between Holy Communion theologically and as a sacrament um, and Protestant churches that just give out dried bread and, and grape juice once a week. Uh, yes, there's a difference yeah, in, there's, yeah. yeah, there is certainly a difference in belief. And so much like, a, I guess, a Catholic would, or a, an observant Catholic, I assume, would not want to partake in the latter, um, a Sunni Muslim, uh, an observant Sunni Muslim would not undertake sacraments with a, uh, with a Shi'i, you know, would not pray behind them, um, would not fast, etc., in the way that they do, uh, and the other particular idiosyncratic practices that they have, uh, and, and vice versa. Is there an idea of sacramentality in Islam? Certainly. Um, I'm not sure that it's the same way as it is theologically in Catholicism, but certainly. I mean, the the five daily prayers, I think, substitute you know, perfectly as a sacrament. Um, the, uh, the annual charity, the zakat, also substitutes perfectly as a sacrament. In, sorry, uh, and a sacrament, of course would be the kind of uh, material or tangible object. And I guess in your usage, you're looking maybe as a practice or perhaps a, a, an action with a dispensation of grace, of some kind of divine... Well, that, yeah, that, that's, that's exactly how I'd describe it as the latter that you just said, yeah. Um, so if I'm using the term inappropriately, I apologise. Um, but... Um, yeah, I, I certainly, I mean, I, I, from the way that I would utilise the term, I would say that Islam is a is a sacramental religion. Um, and, and I think, like, my understanding of Catholicism anyway, um, we certainly don't say that our actions demand uh, the dispensation of grace, but that they, uh, I guess for lack of better terminology, they, they open the window to its possibility. Um, and, uh, and it's God inviting us to, uh, partake of them. Not, not in this, um, really elementary understanding that a lot of people have, you know, for just simply gaining good deeds over bad on a, on a, on a literal scale, but exactly, uh, as you said, opening the, the, the window to the possibility of, uh, divine grace. Does that make sense? Yes. No, I, I understand what you're saying. So is... Islam a religion of miracles, or is, is it a? I, I I have here that I do want to get to you know whether or not I suppose Islam would be accurately described as a moderate, or is there such a thing as a moderate Muslim? That's a totally different issue, though. What I want to know now is what's the? Is it a, a religion of reason, or I mean I don't want to make them mutually exclusive. Is it a religion of um, fact? some kind of cold, hard, scientific perspective on the world? Is it a religion of miracles where there's a intervention of divine grace in the life of man? Would you say it's both? How would you describe it? Yeah, I'd say it's both. Uh, and again, I like to think that in terms of Christianity, Catholicism is also both, uh, whereas I, my reading of Reformed theology would be that it's purely the the latter uh you know it's it's kind of sola fide and and you know sola gracia and that's that's about it but yeah purely, certainly, yeah, yeah purely the words rather than uh any kind of 
ongoing presence of God, any kind of ongoing manifestation of God. But yes, continue. Yeah. That, that's right. So, I mean, for and for us, we'd be both. Uh, I guess where we would probably be different from the typical Christian understanding would be that that we argue, or at least some of our theologians argue, that one can arrive at the truth of Islamic belief purely through reason. Um, but adopting the belief, that's where the grace comes in. So, um, so yeah, in terms of uh, the actual process of coming to belief, we would argue that it's both. And then in terms of the application, we would also argue that it's both. So, I mean, miracles are certainly a critical part of our belief. To deny the existence of miracles would make one completely uh, non-Muslim. Um, but, but also in terms of our day-to-day -day life, and again, much like a, uh, I guess a, a rational Catholic, you know, we're not expecting um, a, you know, the, the hand to come out and start writing on the on the wall for us to tell us what to do today. Uh, we have a specific set of you know rational beliefs and processes that that get us through the the day to day things. I guess the the, the prosaic um, issues of life. The mundane. But, yes, exactly. Yeah, but in terms of the, the poetry of life, and in particular a connection to the divine, uh, that's where the, for lack of a better term, the miraculous element comes in. So, I mean, I certainly cannot describe to anyone uh, in words or through actions what, uh, what the feeling or the experience of divine grace has been for me, uh, but, um, but I can experience it for myself. And uh, that would be, I guess, the miraculous element but in terms of illustrating things like well the prophet muhammad peace be upon him certainly existed uh the quran has particular impressive elements that lean it towards being a revelation from god uh the particular natural theology that islam uh, espouses and so on one can can understand these rationally independently of revelation how does islam present itself to the world uh, well, I think that depends on who's presenting it. <laughs> That's true. Um, In your opinion, is there, I've heard it described as the religion of the middle, din al-wasat. So yeah. something and, about reason. What are the um, claims and possibly the, the reasons for pride, uh, pride in, in faith that uh, Muslims hold to? Well, I think I think there's two. I think there's first the the doctrine that you just touched on, uh, and I think then the second thing would be the history that's the intellectual history that's tended to emanate from that doctrine. So, mm. in, in terms of being Din al Wasak and uh, being the the moderate path, well, um, we like to, this is what the religion dictates itself, and we like to think that this is most clear in sort of what we we're talking about before, where. Islam holds to rational principles, but also holds to emotional principles as well. You know, accepting that uh, a human being uh, is made up of both. Um, and it's one thing to, uh, for ex to use a, a contemporary thing, it's one thing to rationally convince uh, human beings that uh, our federal budget is uh, currently causing us to live outside of our means. It's another thing to emotionally convince them that uh, things need to be changed in order to correct that. Um, and so Islam as, a Islam as a religion accepts that, that 
that both the intellectual and the emotional need to be satisfied. Uh, so I think that's sort of our foundation for being the middle path. And then, and then we argue it in, you know, um, and microscopically in terms of specific doctrines as well. So we like to argue that well, our position on Jesus is the middle path between the Orthodox Christian position and, say, the Jewish position, um, i.e. Well, that we accept that he is a prophet, a, uh, a mighty prophet of God who uh, brought a new revelation and, and, uh, and was also the Messiah, but we don't accept that he uh, has any uh, divine attributes and uh, we don't accept the you know, salvation uh, doctrine either. Um, and we can go on to other other things uh, mm. as well. But, yeah, generally we like to think that, yeah, we are we are the middle ground religion. We are the religion of, of moderatism. And, and we will go on to those other things, and they are many. We're wanting to look at is there such a thing as moderate Islam? Is Islam a proselytizing religion? What is dimitude and where did it come from? And is it ever appropriate for a Muslim government today? All that and more in our next in this two-part series on what is Islam. Um, Abdullah, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you very much, Daniel, and apologies for my copious answers. No, well, you know, it's a, it's, it's a huge array of subjects. It's, it's, it's a big deal. And uh, listeners, you can tune in and uh, join us for our next instalment of Conversations with Daniel Newell. Thank you, and enjoy all of the other great podcasts right here on Cradio. You've been listening to an episode of Conversations with Daniel Noor. And for more episodes of Conversations, and for more talks, interviews, and shows, visit cradio.org.au.